You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. seen this week, they found mountains that they didn't know knew existed before in Antarctica, right in the middle in the South Pole. It's a place where the uh, satellites could not see, and so they had to fly some planes over uh, two years ago to do some work and to look underneath the ice, and they found an entire mountain range in Antarctica, mountains that they didn't know were there. Um, as much as we know about the intricacies of the earth, <laughs> we missed entire mountains. And there's a mountain on your, your bulletin, and we're in Deuteronomy 5, a time when the Lord brought his people to a mountain, and it was terrifying. Number one, mountains are huge, and they remind us of how small we are. But the Israelites were told, if you remember in Exodus... You can't, don't come too close or you're going to die because the Lord's presence had come down. But as big as mountains are, and we're amazed by the fact, how can you miss an entire mountain range? How, all the way up to this point, do we not know that mountains are underneath the ice? And as big as that seems, and we we sung about, he can move the mountains. We sung about his greatness. We sung about his power. But... For God, a mountain is just like a little, little speck of dust. Because when he came down, he covered it. And it was terrifying. And he said, if you get too close, you're going to die. This is the God that we serve. But the God that we serve also is the one we just sung about in this last song. That we can come before his throne with hope. Because of grace. Because of Christ. And this is the... This is the tension, this is the, the mixture, if you will, about what we experience when we come to this text, these texts, the Ten Commandments, this whole idea, is we have this picture of God who is so big and, quite frankly, so terrifying. And yet, even in this, we have a God who is so merciful and so gracious and so patient and so long-suffering. And this is, he's not changed He's been this way ever since. He has existed and he continues to be this way. God still today is, in a sense, terrifying. Because of we can't even conceptualize what, what he is, how big he is. Because our brains can't hold that in. But yet, he's so merciful and so gracious and so patient. What a good God. We've, we've sung about it. How great is our God. That doesn't even, that's, cuts it short. Our God is so good. Why are we talking about the Ten Commandments? Number one, I I think there is a uh, confusion oftentimes that Christians can have with what do we do with the Old Testament law? How are we to uh, understand it? Some of us might feel very uh, passionate about the Ten Commandments need to stay up in public places but we might not as feel as passionate about actually obeying them. Uh, if I gave you a quiz right now, could you tell me all the Ten Commandments without opening your Bibles? That'd be good if you could, but that doesn't earn you anything other than good job. They're important, but I don't think we always understand how we should understand them. We affirm them and, and, and perhaps want to teach them and understand them and understand how clear they are. But yet, we also say things like, well, I'm, I'm free from the law now. I'm, I'm in, under grace. I don't, I don't need to worry about the law. I don't need to obey. Maybe we would say things like that. And so we probably, if you're honest, maybe sometimes you're confused about, how do I understand the law as a Christian? And so I want to 
with the Lord's help, of course, use this series as a means to clear up any confusion there. Because this confusion reigns, and through popular preachers and teachers that I'm sure many of you read and listen to, one in particular, most recently, Andy Stanley preached a, a series of messages where he said, basically, that we don't need to obey the Ten Commandments. And that we really don't need the Old Testament. All we really need to worry about is the fact that Jesus resurrected. You can go back and listen to the messages if you like. But that is, it's not dangerously close. It is pretty much heresy. And so, I don't use that word um, lightly, but that's serious. To deny the value of the Old Testament is to deny Scripture that the Lord has inspired and given to us. And so be careful about uh, some of these messages that we hear because they're shreds of things that, quite frankly, he just gets wrong in his approach to the Old Testament that can lead us very far off course. The other reason, clear up confusion, but the other reason is obedience is important. God desires for his people to obey him. You know just a tiny shred of this as parents. You want your kids to obey you. Right? Doesn't the Heavenly Father, even more so, want his children to obey him? So obedience is important. Why are we in Deuteronomy and not Exodus? Because, you know, Exodus is where the Ten Commandments were first given. Exodus is sort of as it's happening. We're reading through Exodus, uh, starting really in chapter 18 and then on through 20, when the Ten Commandments are given. That's when it took place. But Deuteronomy takes place 40 years after the fact. So why Deuteronomy? The, The word Deuteronomy itself literally means second law. Second law. It's the second time the law was given. And, and many times Moses is repeating things that he's already said, that the Lord has already said through him in Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers, perhaps. But at other times he is highlighting further things, all, of course, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The structure itself of Deuteronomy, you have chapters 1 through 3, are kind of an introduction and a historical walkthrough of Israel from the time of the Exodus up till that point, 40 years later. And chapters 4 through 26 is essentially Moses' sermon. It's a sermon based in the Ten Commandments. And everything that he says after the Ten Commandments is highlighting and drawing out all kinds of things that directly relate back to one of the Ten Commandments. And that goes all the way through chapter 26. Chapters 27 through 30 of Deuteronomy are curses and blessings. If you don't follow these commandments, if you don't keep the covenant with the Lord, these are the things that will happen to you. If you do, these are the things that will happen to you. And then finally, the the people ratify the covenant again. They're responding, if you will, to the sermon. And then the last few chapters are who will take leadership after Moses and Moses' death. But the bulk of Deuteronomy reads like a sermon. Because Moses is saying all of these things, as you read through the book of Deuteronomy, he's saying all these things to the people. This is not little, little uh, uh, patched together thoughts that he had. He's saying these things to all the people. And we're given the setting in our text uh, this morning, and we're going to be in Deuteronomy 4 a bit to get a sense of our setting here. But why am I picking the Deuteronomy version? It's, I like the fact that it's highlighting people that already know the truth. You might not have been able to remember the Ten Commandments, but if we start, if you just flipped your Bible to them and started reading through them, you go, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. You've heard them all before. You know them. You know you're not supposed to murder someone. Right? You know that. And, and Deuteronomy functions as a reminding sermon, a, a, a refresher, uh, if you will, to a bunch of people who already know these things. But Clearly, needed to hear them again, and again, and again, and again. And you all are the same way. And so I'm in Deuteronomy because of the particular uh, way in which Moses is speaking to the people, deciding to bring them back, remind them. This is a new generation, by the way, as well. Forty years later, these are, these are new people. Yes, they may have heard it, they know it, 
But it's time for them, it's time for that next generation to understand that it's not just about what their fathers and mothers did, but it's time for them to start obeying. And not just coasting along and, well, mom and dad, whatever they do, but I'm just kind of riding along. It's time for the new generation to obey and to listen, to understand that God's word is for them. And that they're not just receiving it down through through uh, their parents. Do you know, this is, I came across this, this idea this week. God does not have any grandchildren. You ever heard that? That means that you're not riding in on your parents underneath the Lord as your father. He's your father, right? And so there's a need for every generation to appropriate and understand God's word for them and to, to, and to do it. And so even as I say that, though, older generation, I'm not saying I'm not talking to you. (laughs) Because this is for you as well. Maybe this is your umpteenth, millionth time you've heard something about the Tenth Commandments. Good. The Lord, I know, I trust, has something to say to you in it. Why are we talking about the law? Why are we talking about the Ten Commandments? We talked about that. Why the Deuteronomy version talked about that. Why are we talking about the law? Briefly, let me just summarize for you. The law is kind of separated classically in three categories. You've probably heard this before. There are ceremonial laws, things that have to do with ceremonies, things that the people were to do in worship. There's the civil law that had to do with the nation of Israel themselves, how they were to hold themselves up as a nation, things they were to do and not to do. And then there was the moral law, like don't kill people, and so on. The ceremonial law and the civil law were both fulfilled by Christ. You remember Matthew 17, Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or prophets, but rather to fulfill them. He fulfilled the ceremonial and the civil law. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful uh, testament to the fact that we no longer have to come in and do many of the ceremonies that are instituted in the law as we come to worship because Christ has fulfilled all those. But those principles are still helpful to us. Here's an example. When Paul and talking about the need for those uh, people who are called by God to be pastors and shepherds of people, that as they work, they are worthy of making a wage, if need be, from what they're doing. And he uses this little phrase. He talks about, do not muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. Now, literally, when that was spoken, that literally meant, don't muzzle your ox while it's treading out the grain. Your ox needs to eat while it's treading out the grain. But Paul, now, he's not telling Christians, hey, don't muzzle your oxes because God said so. He's not talking about oxes. He's using the principle inherent in that law and saying it's still of worth, it's still of value to Christians. Or perhaps the mixing of fabrics. You're all guilty. Okay? It's okay. You're free in Christ to wear 50-50. It's good. But... There's a value still in that law because it's showing, and all the laws that are like that with mixing and all that stuff, it's showing the holiness and the righteousness of our God and how important it is for him that we be clean before him, right? And so we can still take principles from those kinds of laws. We just need not worry about whether our ox is muzzled or not or whether we have polyester and cotton on. But then there's the moral law. Jesus fulfilled the moral law as well. He lived up to all of these laws. He kept the law perfectly. He's the only person to have ever done so. There's still a need for Christians to follow it, and it's strengthened by Christ saying, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he's not saying, I've fulfilled all the righteousness of God, which is revealed in the law. You guys just take it easy. We're going to grade on a curve from now on until I come back. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He has fulfilled it for you. And the credit that Joel talked about, that we sung about, the credit on his account was credited to you through faith in him. So now you have his perfect obedience. You have his perfect record if you have faith in Jesus Christ. But that does not negate the fact that, okay, you're a son or daughter of the Heavenly Father now. Don't you want to obey him? Which Jesus says as much, and we'll get to those places. And so... 
It's helpful to think about that. The ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. All fulfilled by Christ. Important principles from the ceremonial and civil law still for us. The moral law still upholds for us. There's also something that theologians over the years have talked about as the three uses of the law. The first purpose of the law, as you read the Old Testament, as you read particularly the laws given in the first five books of the Bible, there's three things that they're helpful for. Number one, it's a mirror to reflect the righteousness of God. God's righteousness, God's righteous standard, His holy standard is reflected in the law. It shows us how God is, who God is, what He's like. And the result for us is it convinces us of our sin because we see I am not like that, right, when you see the law. So number one, it's a mirror to reflect the righteousness of God. Number two, it's a curb to restrain evil. You know when there's a law in the books that says don't murder people, that doesn't necessarily keep people from murdering people. But if there's a subsequent punishment that comes along with if you do, you will be killed, that can help, right? But it doesn't do it all it doesn't do it completely right you could take it for our own laws that are on the books you know that if you speed you're going to get a speeding ticket and so that helps a little bit but not all the time right so it's a curb it can restrain evil the law can restrain evil because there are subsequent consequences and punishments that go along with breaking the law that's the second use the third use is a guide it's a guide for the Christian in knowing what is pleasing to a God and to encourage obedience in us. It's a guide for the Christian in knowing what is pleasing to God which encourages our obedience. And that third use of the law is helpful to us as Christians. We want to please the Lord, don't you? You want to do what is pleasing to the Lord. You want to live your life in such a way that pleases Him. And the law helps us in those ways because it shows us who God is, what He's like, what His character is like, what His nature is like, and you realize through Christ, through the Spirit, by His Word, I can approach that and pursue that, and God can help me to do that. And so why are we talking about the law? Because it's still very valuable for us as Christians. Let me touch on just a couple scriptures, and you can jot these down. You don't have to turn to all these, but let me remind you of some of them. I've already mentioned one, but the first is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You know this verse most likely. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He starts with all scripture. At that time, he's, Paul is not holding a copy of the New Testament. He's writing <laughs> part of the New Testament. So what's he talking about with all scripture at that point? In that context, he's talking about the Old Testament. What did Paul and, and others preach from? They preached from and taught through, in the synagogues, the Old Testament. Now, granted, the New Testament is called Scripture by itself at various places. Luke talks about Paul's writing of Scripture. Peter talks about Paul's writing of Scripture. And so it refers to itself as Scripture, and it is Scripture. But what Paul is initially talking about is the Old Testament. And he says that the Old Testament, if you will, you can insert that for yourself, which includes the law, is breathed out by God. And what? Profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, and for training in righteousness. The law of God, the Old Testament, is profitable to us, to you, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. So as much as we affirm that statement, let's make sure we affirm it about all Scripture, right? Matthew 5, Jesus, I've already referenced this several times, Matthew 5, uh, Jesus talking here, Uh, Verses 17 through 20, I'll just read uh, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He goes on to say that until everything is finished, this is my paraphrase, nothing's going to fall away from the law. It's all going to be there. It's all going to maintain. So Jesus affirms that, yes, I have fulfilled it. In one sense, he's fulfilled it for you. He's kept the law perfectly for you that it might be credited to your account, to my account, through faith in him. And he's done away with, as I said, the ceremonial and civil laws that we need no longer live by those, but we certainly can learn from those and gain principles about how we must live. Later on in Matthew, chapter 22, 
uh, verses 35 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, that is Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment from the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is doing here is not saying, don't worry about the Ten Commandments, just worry about these two. Because what he's doing in these two is summarizing the Ten Commandments. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, essentially, um, as we'll see, summarizes the first four commandments of the Ten. And then, loving your neighbor as yourself summarizes the last six commandments of the Ten. And everything that is said out of, flowing out of the rest of the law, all in some way has to do with this. So Jesus, in summarizing the Ten Commandments, is really affirming and holding up the Ten Commandments and saying, these are what, why these are important. These are the great commandments. We like to summarize them and say, we just need to love God and love people. Well, sometimes it's good to be simple, but sometimes it's good to then push the simplicity out into what are the details? What does that mean? How do I do that? I don't want to just say little phrases. I don't want my Christian life to just be a bunch of little phrases that I respond back to people when they say something and we all go, hmm, and I don't actually do anything, right? I want to be actually authentic and understand what it means that I, what does this mean to live for the Lord and to live my life in obedience to the Lord? And so that's what Jesus is affirming. He's summarizing them, but he is adding more value to them for the Christian Galatians 3, I don't have time to go to, nor Romans 7, but I was going to go to both of those. I'll summarize those for you. Galatians 3, Paul is down in the weeds talking about all kinds of things. He's right in the middle of his argument talking about the law. But his two most important points that I was going to highlight is that, number one, no one is justified before God by the law. You will not be justified. You will not be made right. You will not be accepted by the Lord by following the law. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to hear this. And if you're continuing to be with us throughout this series, I want you to hear this very clearly. What I'm not saying, and what God is not saying, is that if you follow the Ten Commandments, you'll be good with God. Because that's not true. The only way that you will be accepted by God is through faith in Jesus Christ, because He is the only one who has fully kept the law for you on your behalf, dying for all the, pun- all the penalties and curses that come upon you and I for our breaking of the law. So it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that you will be accepted by God. So please make sure that you hear that. Paul says, no one is justified before God by the law. Also, he says, the purpose of the law was our guardian. It was to lead us to Christ. Remember what I said? That the law is a mirror to reflect the righteousness of God, but it's also a guide for us. The law was our guardian. The law was our schoolmaster, in some translations it says, leading us to Christ, Paul says in Galatians 3. Paul, in Romans 7, is wrestling then with this whole sense that the law, as he reads about uh, covetousness, he says, I didn't know that I was coveting. I didn't know about covetousness until I read in the law about do not covet, and then I began to covet. And so he's starting to wrestle with this whole idea, is there, is there something wrong with the law then? And what he makes clear is, and he says in Galatians 3, but he also talks about it in Romans uh, chapter 7, the law is holy and righteous and good because it reflects the character and nature of God. There's nothing wrong with the law. It, yeah, you have to understand this. God did not give an imperfect law to his people as though the Old Testament was like, ah, that's what I was trying, and let me, let me fix it with Jesus. No, that was perfect and holy and righteous and good. The problem is with us. We are what is defective. Paul says as much in Romans 7. You can read it. Sin, he said, weakened the law. His sin, my sin, your sin, weakened the law. When we come up to God's perfect, righteous standard, it is not the law that's the problem, it's us that's the problem. We don't measure up. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 3 that all fall short of the glory of God. So, I just wanted to walk through a few of those passages to help us get a grounding for a sense of how we're to deal with the law. We're in our text now, Deuteronomy, all that by way of introduction. Maybe next week will be shorter, but probably not. Setting for Deuteronomy 5. 
Moses is uh, speaking to the second generation uh, uh, who have come out of, ex- uh, out of Egypt in the Exodus. And they're standing in the plains of Moab. I thought about throwing a map up, but I didn't want to overload you with stuff. But they're standing in the plains of Moab just to the north of the Dead Sea. And they're right outside the Promised Land. And so they're standing in the plains there, and Moses has gathered all the people together, and he's speaking to them, and he's reminding them of the law of God, so that they may go in and possess the land and live in the blessing that was promised to their forefather Abraham. That's the setting. We're going to start at chapter 4 and verse 44. I'll read down through chapter 5, verse 7, if you want to follow along with me. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, and the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Error, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Syrian, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The end of chapter 4 gives us a setting for which Moses is re-delivering the law to the people. He's in the plains of Moab. That comes actually earlier in chapter 4. Uh, as I said, right to the north of the Dead Sea there. And he is talking about some of the things that have already happened. And it's sort of the introduction uh, that is told to us there in verse 44. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. Verse 45, these are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules. In other words, these are different categories and different outflowings of the law, of really the Ten Commandments, the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules, all things that flow out of these core Ten Commandments. Chapter 5, verse 1, he begins, notice he summons all Israel. This is for everyone. The law is for everyone. No one is excluded. He summons all Israel. They're all to come. Imagine that sight in the plain there. He didn't have a microphone. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Three things that they were to do. Hear, learn, and do. They're to hear it, They're to learn it, and they're to do it. He says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. And then he says this, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Now, there's an emphasis being given here. This is a new generation. He says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us, and in the covenant that the Lord made with the people comes the law. And when he made that covenant, he made it with their fathers. So he did make it with their fathers. But the emphasis is on the people that are there now, because many of that generation are not there anymore. And he's talking to the next generation. And so Moses is trying to make clear, this is with you. Don't make it about this was the covenant that God made with my fathers. That's true. But the emphasis on this is with you, where Moses was looking into their eyes and saying, this is with you. This covenant is made with you. It's for you. He goes, verse 4, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. Now, again, this is for emphasis. He did not speak with the people face to face. Moses was up in the mountain. Remember, he came back down all shining. 
The point, though, is the way in which God spoke. This says something about how important God sees his word. Okay? The way in which God spoke through the, the clouds, out of the midst of the fire. <laughs> it's hard to even wrap our minds around. The way in which God spoke through the clouds, in the darkness, veiled for the people. Don't come too close to the mountain, you're going to die. He spoke through Moses, who Moses uh, later couldn't even see the front of God's glory. So that was even had to be a bit masked and veiled for Moses, even when he was up there. The Lord who spoke in that way to the people, he's saying, that's the same as me speaking with you face to face. That's what he's saying about the value of his word. So, friends, as we open our Bibles, as you hear the word proclaimed to you, preached to you, when you open your Bibles, the Lord is saying, I'm speaking with you face to face. That's the value and the power of his word. That's how much value he puts on it. Moses had a job, verse 5, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. They were going to die. Moses was the only one who couldn't die in that sense to go up. He was able to go up there and here. Moses was a sense of a sort of an intermediary between him and the people, between the Lord and the people. And he brought back to them what the Lord had said. But God says, it's the same as me speaking with you face to face. And he begins, verse 6, God begins, I am the Lord, your God. Or literally, I am Yahweh, your God. Gives his name, and then he says, I am your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We don't have the time to go back through the whole story of the Exodus, but you understand, the people were in slavery and bondage for 400 years, that was predicted, that was prophesied to uh, the people earlier on. It was going to come. It was going to happen in many ways because of their disobedience. 400 years in bondage, in slavery. The people in bondage and slavery in, 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 uh, in Egypt did nothing to merit the Lord's coming and delivering them. They cried out. Remember, he says, I've heard the cries of my people. But they did nothing to earn it. God just did it. Why? Because he had made a promise a long time ago to Abram. And so he was, God was being faithful to his covenant that he had made with Abram. He, so he's going to deliver Abram, Abram's descendants because he still made a promise to Abram to make him a blessing, to make him a great nation, to bless those who bless him, to curse those who curse him, and to give him the land. And so God was going to do all of that through Egypt. And so it's interesting the way the Lord begins, isn't it? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He, he, he sort of further explains that, out of the house of slavery. We often look at the law or commands from God as slavery. They seem oppressive. They seem too difficult. They seem like a buzzkill. They seem too hard, right? And notice what God says. Number one, he's beginning the law. He's beginning commands and obedience with a Word to tell them, I redeemed you. Now I'm going to give you my law. I saved you. Now I'm going to give you my law. And that same pattern is true for us as Christians. Think about the book of Romans. If you know the pattern of the book of Romans, pastor walked us through that some months ago. Uh, Romans 1 through 11 are a whole bunch of things talking about what God has done in Christ for his people. And then Romans 12, therefore, do all these things. So the pattern is always there of the Lord giving grace, saving, and now this is what it looks like to obey now that I've redeemed you, now that I've saved you, now that I've brought you out of the house of slavery. Because remember, people, that was the house of slavery. This is not slavery. It's a lie to say that this is oppressive and too much to bear and harmful. Straight from hell, that is a lie. What you were in before Christ, that was slavery. That was death. That was oppressive. That was damaging. What you're in after Christ, what you're in after He has delivered you, is the complete polar opposite of all of that. And that's what He's reminding them of. I am the Lord your God. I, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You didn't bring yourself... 
Frankly, you don't deserve it, but because I promised, and because I made a covenant, and because I always do what I say, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Isn't that true for us, Christians? We didn't deserve it. We don't merit it. We know this, but just that has to soak into us every time we think about what the Lord has done in our lives. And He did it in spite of who we are. While we're still sinners, right? Christ died for us. He says, you shall have, here's the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. God desires to have soul supremacy and to be exalted among his people. He desires that all ungodliness, everything that's counteractive to him, would subside and that anything that veils or keeps his glory from shining forth more through us, through his church, through in creation and all of the world should be removed. I was thinking about this. You shall have no other gods before me. This is very tangible for uh, the Israelites at that time because literally it was you shall not have the Egyptian gods that you were underneath for generations. You shall not have the gods of the Canaanites and the others that are in the land. That, that seems very practical, right? And for us, it becomes a little more difficult to think about that. Um, obvious things are the God of the Muslims It's not your God. The God of Jehovah's Witnesses is not your God. The God of the Mormons is not your God. The God of the Buddhists is not your God. None of those are God. They're all false. So you shall, have, you shall not have them. That seems obvious, right? But the thing about in, in the West, in America, is that our gods are oftentimes that we're attracted to or perhaps tempted to go and serve don't have those kind of big names, right? They're not attached to an a, a organized religion. I will argue that they're attached to a religion, just not organized, So I was thinking about what does it mean in what he's saying? What does it mean for him to be God? Right? What does that mean? What does it mean to be that he is God and him alone? Because he's saying, you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. He's not saying, I need to be your chief God, and then you can have others that are subsequent. That doesn't work. He's not saying, um, you know, just, just keep them down here, but just make sure I'm preeminent. That doesn't work either. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. Four things, I think, that are helpful to think about that we owe to God as God. First is worship. Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Worship. We owe God our worship. Worship literally means that we're uh, prescribing worth to something or someone. When we worship God, we're saying He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worth all of this. He is worth all of this fuss, if you will. Shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Number two, trust. Psalm 25, verse 2. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Trust. We owe God trust because he is trustworthy. He's worth trusting. He is the one in whom we, notice what the psalm says, in you I trust. Not just I trust you, but in you I trust. You're trustworthy. I need to trust you with my life, with my family, with my whatever. Insert that. You need to trust him with it. The third thing is invocation. Fancy word meaning uh, we should ask him for things. Let me tell you what I mean. Psalm 22, verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. You see, um, we like to be our own help. Or we like to have other people be our help. Or other things be our help. Anything but God. But when God is in the right position in our lives as God, He is the one to whom we look for for help. Just as the psalmist says, Oh, you my help. Not, God, you're really helpful. But 
You are my help. At the end of the day, you're all that I have. Even the people that help me is how you're helping me. Even the things that I have that help me is how you're helping me. It's seeing that everything is a means from God to help us. He is our help. So we owe him worship. We owe him trust. We owe him invocation or understanding that he is our help. Lastly, we owe him thanksgiving. And this is sort of a negative way to think about this, but Paul in Romans 1 Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. It says something about that they needed to give thanks to Him. God is worth thanking. We need to thank God all the time for what He has done, for what He is doing, for what He will do, for who He is. That He didn't (laughs) demolish us. That He's gracious, that He's patient, that He's merciful, that He is so overflowingly kind. We owe him our worship, we owe him our trust, we owe him our invocation, or relying on him as our help, we owe him our thanksgiving. And so when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, those are four helpful things to just run through your mind and think about. It's easy to see in the the Israelites that they did not do, they specifically did not do each of these things with God. But think about for yourselves. What else do you ascribe worth to, worthiness? What else do you put your trust in? What do you look for for help? What do you give your thanksgiving to? If the answer to any of those questions are not primarily God, and not just your Sunday school answer because you want to impress the people that are listening, but honestly, you have a problem. You may have another God before the one true God. I don't have a lick of time to get through much of anything that I have here, um, which is wonderful. Uh, And there's more time in the Lord's uh, providence. Hopefully in the future we'll go through more of it. But what's important is this. Jeremiah uh, chapter 7. You can read that later. In Jeremiah chapter 7, particularly verses 1 through 10, the issue is the Israelites, this is much time later, the, their, their, their worship was tainted because of their sin. Their worship of God is tainted by their sin. Their sin was a problem, but the ultimate issue lies in what their particular sin, sin says about how they view God. And that's true for us. Our sins manifest how we actually think about God. When we go after certain things, whatever your particular temptation or struggle is, says, first of all, that you don't believe that God can satisfy that or provide for that or uh, change that or fix that or help you in that, right? That's what you're saying as, you, as we sin. And so in Jeremiah, that's the problem. And that's the problem for, that's how the Israelites broke the first, com- the, the first commandment, again and again. They sometimes literally had other gods before God. They had Baal, they had all kinds of other gods that they put before him. Some of the gods of the Egyptians they were tempted with at times. And you may be tempted with that. You may be thinking about Christianity, I don't know, you know, I like some of this Buddhist stuff, I like whatever. Maybe that's true for you. But I suspect more than likely it's other things. Like people, celebrities politicians, your children, your spouse, your family, other notable people, or institutions like the U.S. government, sports teams, clothing brands, ideas, political ideas even, feminism, progressivism, conservatism, capitalism, or other things like sex, money, power, social status, success, comfort, All of those things are prime candidates for all of you, all of us, to be gods before God. Because for each of those things, we're tempted to worship them at times. We're tempted to put our trust in them. We're tempted to look to them for help. We're tempted to give them all the thanks that only God is due. And if you're really honest with yourself and do a bit of self-diagnosis, you'd see perhaps where sometimes you're bent in those ways. But here's the great news. For commandment breakers like us, the cross paid for our disobedience. 
Isaiah 53 tells us, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is on Christ, the iniquity of us all. Every time you and I have broken the first commandment, that was put on Christ. And we've broken it a lot. Later, that was verse 6. Later on in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That is Christ. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. The cross has paid for our disobedience. The cross is for commandment breakers. Of which all of us are. Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Through Christ, through the cross, he has paid for our disobedience again and again uh, that we tend to rack up. He did it one time, but our disobedience is again and again. He paid for that disobedience. Such that we don't need to stand underneath that commandment feeling the weight of that, condemning us, Because the cross is paid for our sins. The cross is paid for our commandment breaking. And Jesus has kept the first commandment for us. Matthew 4, when the devil is tempting him. Again, the devil took him, uh, verses 8 through 10. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The same verse that I just quoted earlier about worship. Even Jesus kept the first commandment, but he's God. He's affirming that. Here, Satan wants him to fall down and worship him. Jesus responds, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus kept the first commandment. Matthew 5.17 reminds us that Jesus kept the first commandment for you and for me. Fulfilling, in part, fulfilling the law means keeping the, obe- the commandments. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Because if you're honest with yourself and you think about, Yes, I have put other things in God's position before God in my life. Yes. And that crushes you, perhaps, just for a moment. And then you remember the cross that took care of that disobedience, took care of that penalty that is righteously deserved. Jesus kept that commandment so that you got a credit to your account that said, Nick has kept that commandment because Jesus did for him. And then, even better, but wait, there's more. There's therefore now no condemnation for Nick because he's in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus gave and gives believers his spirit. The spirit was given in part to aid believers in obeying. Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. It tells us something about what the Spirit is to do. The Spirit, remember what, remember what Moses said that the Israelites were to do with it? They were to what? Hear, learn, and to do. The Spirit does all of those things for us. John 16, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth comes, and he comes and dwells inside of you, you can now hear for the first time. You don't have ears that are plugged up anymore. You can hear God's Word, hear it. What the Lord speaks to the Spirit, the Spirit speaks to you, declares to you those things which Christ wants us to know, and they're in his Word. We can hear the law. We can hear the commandment. For the first time, the Spirit helps us with that. The Spirit helps us to learn. John 14, 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You can learn the commandment by the Spirit because he's been promised to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything that Jesus has said. 
which, by the way, Jesus said the Old Testament. Because he's the eternal word of God. Lastly, the Spirit helps us do them. Remember, I read Ezekiel already to you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit is that which causes us to obey. But also, you might think of Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is getting after the same idea that's in Ezekiel. It's God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Paul said at the beginning of that verse, in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, even in my presence. So it's talking about obedience. And Paul says it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the Spirit of God, not only has God taken care of your disobedience, not only has God credited you with Jesus' obedience, not only has God given you his Spirit, but he's given you his Spirit so that you might hear the commandments, learn the commandments, and do the commandments. God has provided you everything. You are lacking in nothing if you are in Christ. And so, can you keep the first commandment? Yes. With the Spirit's help, you can. You can keep that. Will you fail? Yes. But will God's work of holiness and sanctification and growth in you fail because you fail? No. When you fail... And you go to the Lord in confession, in repentance. And he hears your confession and he's faithful and just to forgive us your sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He picks back up on his work again, making you more and more into the image of Christ, which he is remaking you into. Because you are a new creation in Christ and you will be finally and consummately in Christ, in glory. And he's not going to give up on his work because he tells us in Philippians, right? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what God is doing. He is working to produce obedience. In you because obedience for us is freedom and peace and joy. It doesn't feel like that sometimes. Obedience feels hard. Obedience feels burdensome. Obedience feels impossible. Obedience feels like the very opposite of what we want. But we have to understand where our wants are coming from. And Philippians 2 tells us that God works in us to will, to want, according to his good pleasure. He's provided everything so that we may have no other gods before him. Because he alone is worthy of our praise. He alone is worthy of our very lives and our devotion and our trust. Amen? Amen.